Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Stockwell about her study of the changes in the role British institutions played in their country's former empire during the period of decolonization, entitled The British End of the British Empire. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. I'm a historian of the British Empire and specifically of British uh, imperialism and colonialism in the 20th century and mostly the second half of the 20th century. So my research has focused above all on British decolonisation. I started out by looking at the experience of British business during decolonisation in Ghana, uh, West Africa. And since then, I've worked on a variety of different aspects of British decolonisation, including most recently, but not not featured in the book that we're discussing, looking at the Church of England and the end of empire. I suppose generally I focus more on sort of economic aspects of decolonisation than other. I edited a general history of the British Empire called The British Empire, Themes and Perspectives. I've also worked on one of the volumes in the British uh, British Documents on the End of Empire series. And I've spent nearly all my career at King's College London, where I'm currently Professor of Imperial and Commonwealth History. When I have thought about British decolonization in the past, I've always thought it from the standpoint of the political uh, governmental relations with that decline. And one of the things that I find fascinating about your uh, the approach to decolonization in your work is the fact that you don't look at it just from that official governmental uh, perspective, but you're looking at these all these other aspects of of British institutions and uh, British organizations that were involved in the empire. And that brings us to the book that you've written, which looks at these these roles that these institutions were playing at the point when decolonization starts and as it is proceeding. What was it that led you to write this particular book and to focus upon the institutions that you did? So I've I suppose throughout my entire academic career, I've had an interest in decolonization beyond the state, the state quite narrowly defined here as a sort of Westminster and Whitehall policymaking centre. As I said at the start, I began my career doing a doctorate on British business and decolonization. At that point, so this was the late 1980s, the early 1990s, There was a considerable body of work on the end of empire emerging, but it was principally to do with the state and perhaps sort of crudely put to do with explaining why and how the end of empire occurred and and to do with imperial policymaking and how the British managed the various 
pressures they were facing, whether those be in the form of anti-colonial nationalism or the sort of international pressures at, at the time, and less to do with how decolonization impacted on individuals and organisations, either on the margins of the state or, or beyond. And so starting with my PhD, I developed this interest in, in, in looking at decolonisation from sort of a non-state perspective. And I've maintained that, that ever since. In the years since I did my PhD and started work on, on business and decolonisation, the historiography on decolonisation has expanded hugely. And there's been a very considerable interest in the ways in which decolonisation shaped British society and culture, particularly around debates around things like immigration to Britain in, in the 50s and, and the 60s. But I think there's still been a, a lack of attention paid to sort of institutions sort of in the middle between the state, narrowly defined, and individuals and society and the sort of cultural aspects of decolonisation. And that's a, a, a gap that I, I hope to go some way towards filling in, in my book by looking at these, these different institutions. I suppose my second motivation was that I've always been interested in processes of state building below the level of parliamentary democracies. I've taught decolonisation for, for very many years at King's in, um, in London. And one of the things I've always been interested in is the development of institutions below that of, of parliamentary ones in, in emergent states. And it's something that I think rarely figures at all in the broader literature on decolonisation. Instead, analysis and discussion of institution building has really been confined to quite specialist literatures that are about particular sectors. So issues to do with the military, for instance, in a literature dominated by military specialists, or to do with building financial institutions in a literature that's led by financial historians, but largely addressed to other financial historians rather than to historians of empire more generally. And I hoped in this book to engage with processes of institution building across different sectors and to bring evidence and material relating to building institutions and the British role in the development of building institutions in new states below the level of, of parliamentary democracies. I wanted to bring those in sort of dialogue with one another so that there was a study that looked at, for example, institution building in relation to public administration alongside the development of institutions in the financial sector and military institutions. Your examination of the building of those institutions was, I thought, really fascinating because as you describe in the uh, initial chapter of your book, it's these uh, British institutions are not just building institutions out of a sense of altruism. They're not saying, well, you know, they have a military, so we must train the military. They're, they're, they're doing so with their own agendas, uh, ones that sometimes are, of course, very complementary with the British state, but also ones that are uh, sometimes designed to play to the particular needs of the institution at home as well. Uh, I think, for example, of like the, the Bank of England issues with sterling balances in the 1950s, and 1960s. Uh, I was wondering if you could perhaps 
begin our uh, discussion of uh, the uh, book itself by talking about overall the, the overarching approach of institution building during that period of decolonization that you address in your book. Okay, um, so um, my sort of starting point in the book is uh, that a variety of um, different domestic uh, British institutions um, had um, to varying degrees, and there are obviously differences between institutions, um, over the course of the 19th and, and 20th centuries, um, assumed uh, kind of imperial roles or in different ways become participants in um, Britain's imperial uh, project. Um, and sort of more than this, I argue that the nature of the, uh, the liberal British state um, was such that uh, institutions on the borders of the state, even when they were technically under the control of um, the state, as, for example, one of my institutions, the Mint is, it's, it's under the control of the Treasury or the Bank of England, which um, was nationalised in 1946. Um, they're technically under the control of the, uh, the state, and yet they enjoyed considerable um, autonomy um, and um, were effectively uh, and able to exercise their own agency in what I describe as a very pluralistic um, British uh, political um, system. And within that pluralistic system, um, these institutions that had assumed um, some form of imperial role um, exercised uh, their own agency at the end of empire um, in ways that one could argue amounted to a form of imperialism as they sought to promote and protect their own distinct institutional interests as well as sort of broader strategic and um, commercial British interests um, at the end of um, empire. Does that answer that question, Mark? Uh, <laughs> It, it does. And, and uh, it was something that I thought was, uh, you know, kind of interesting how you put both of those into play. It wasn't just these institutions as institutions, but also as representatives of the British, I don't want to say state, but sort of the British interest overall, which is, it was interesting getting into the, how you sometimes quote from these individuals and how they're, they're thinking of themselves, not just as the individuals in this role or as representatives of say uh, the mint or of say uh, Sanders, but also of how they were very cognizant of that role that they played as, you know, People that were that were British actors uh, playing this important role representing Britain in this process. Yes, um, so I think they have a broad sense of the importance of promoting um, British strategic and commercial objectives, particularly uh, strategic in the context of the the Cold War, um, and in a very general sense of maintaining British influence. Um, in uh, former British colonies um, in the post-colonial era. Um, but they each have their quite distinct objectives. Um, and 
they use um, some of the uh, opportunities that are presented by decolonization to to promote those. And one of the things I argue in the book is that um, these imperial roles that had evolved over a long period of time in the 19th and the 20th century, um, in some ways, they reach a uh, sort of peak in um, the period immediately after or around the Second World War. So that um, in what is uh, the sort of twilight phase of the British Empire, um, domestic institutions um, had, and obviously this is a bit of a generalisation across different institutions, but very sort of broadly speaking, um, those institutions, um, their interest and stake in the empire um, was of uh, enhanced importance around the mid um, 20th century rather than of sort of dwindling importance. So just at the point at which um, uh, Britain was on the cusp of, of losing the empire, they have this particular vested interest in their roles. Um, the Mint is, is one example of that. Um, the Mint's imperial role, um, as it evolved in the course of the 19th century, um, entailed uh, the um, production of coin for um, various British colonies, um, as well as for some uh, foreign countries. Um, it had also overseen the development of branch mints in um, Australia and Canada and South Africa. Now, that um, export business was important to the mint, because although the mint's core business remained the production of coin for Britain, there are always periods when British demand was slack um, and export business allowed the mint to um, continue using its staff and its plant um, during those periods of, of slack demand and indeed of generating a, a profit. Um, and in the course of the 20th century, um, the mint's export business uh, expanded um, and it was the uh, business of supplying coin to um, the colonies and the dominions that was above all of importance to, to the mint. Um, and in the, uh, the 20th century, um, the um, British government established various uh, colonial currency boards um, that issued currencies for different parts of um, the empire. So, for instance, there was a West African currency board and an East African currency board. Um, and the mint supplied all the, the coin to those currency boards. And the colonies were, in effect, through the arrangements of the currency boards, um, tied customers of the mint. That is, they had no choice in in where they um, placed the uh, orders for the um, their currencies. Um, and this export business um, really peaked in the early 1950s. Um, in 1952, um, which was a really important year in terms of sort of export production, um, the mints, um, uh, over 90% of what the mint produced um, was for export. And two thirds of that um, export business was destined for the empire and Commonwealth. Um, and so just as the mint's business, export business was peaking with the empire Commonwealth constituting a very important part of that, there was the prospect of um, political change leading to self-government and independence and the prospect that these tied colonial customers would be able to source their, uh, their coins from elsewhere. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, in the Mintz case, there was this, this strong vested interest in trying to preserve um, those uh, existing arrangements. Um, and for quite different reasons, uh, the um, Empire Commonwealth was of very considerable significance to the Bank of England um, at the same point in the mid 20th century. Um, not only um, uh, well, the bank had long had an international role through its management of sterling as an international currency, um, but after Britain left the gold standard in 1931 um, and other countries, particularly uh, the colonies and um, the dominions, with the exception of, of Canada, um, chose to base their currencies on sterling and maintain a fixed exchange rate to sterling. Um, the, um, these countries formed uh, a kind of loose association known as the Sterling Bloc, um, and this, uh, you know, increased the importance really of the Empire um, Commonwealth to to the Bank of England, um, and that only intensified with the outbreak of the Second World War, because at that point the imposition of exchange control throughout um, the British Empire transformed this uh, kind of loose association of um, countries basing their uh, currencies on sterling into a very tightly regulated um, sterling area that was managed by the Bank of, of England, um, in which um, the sterling reserves of uh, different parts of the sterling area were sort of pooled in London um, and were available to uh, the British government to, to, to use. Um, in effect, they were giving uh, loans um, to um, the British uh, government. Um, and the bank had also developed uh, very close relations with new central banks in the Dominions. Indeed, it had played a role in the formation of many of those. And in the Second World War, it became um, it, it began to be represented on every single colonial currency board. So, so its role in the empire was um, was certainly not diminishing in this uh, period leading up to um, the end of empire. Um, and one could argue something similar, but for different reasons for uh, the universities of Oxford um, and Cambridge as well, um, two of the other institutions on which I focus. Uh, in their case, um, the imperial role that I, I concentrate on is their part in delivering colonial service um, training. Um, they've done that since the 1920s. Um, there's a hiatus in colonial service training during the uh, Second World War. Um, but um, after the war, the British government introduces a new uh, and enhanced colonial service training program um, that corresponded to a kind of revitalised uh, sense of British imperial purpose, at least as it related to those parts of the empire that remained after South Asian um, independence. Um, and participating in this enhanced uh, training regime brought benefits to um, Oxford and Cambridge, as well as to uh, the University of London, which was also a participant in this uh, this training, um, in part in, in terms of prestige for the institutions, um, but more particularly in terms of material uh, benefits, um, because the colonial office paid them to deliver the training, and that financed um, lectureships and research um, and institutes in uh, areas related to the empire and commonwealth. Um, so again, there's an institution that 
um, in the mid 20th century, as I say, in the sort of cusp of, of um, you know, decolonization, has this, or at least it, some of the individuals within it, have a significant vested interest in the empire. They'd all become, I argue, um, to varying degrees and in different ways, stakeholders in uh, the British Empire. I thought that point you made in your book about the ways in which the colleges were benefiting financially from their role in providing training for uh, the colonial uh, service to be an interesting one because it gets to how when it, it made me think about how they might have approached how they must have approached it, which was they were not th thinking in terms of, well, here we are. Uh, training people to engage in decolonization, or here we are, as you uh, talk about later on, uh, bringing in people from the colonies to uh, train them for their own development of a civil service. But they're thinking in terms of, well, we're getting this amount of money from this from the state, so and and this helps our budget in this way. It, it just struck me that how uh, what you're talking about here is 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 so important. And yet at the same time, you can see in it the traces for which it was not necessarily about this grand strategy that's plotted out in 1947 or 1948 about how decolonization is to be achieved, but through these mundane aspects of these institutions, which are themselves dealing with these very immediate concerns that are uh, turning them towards the empire, the creation of chairs in tropical medicine, the uh, the the appeal for, and, and as you described, the uh, oftentimes quarreling that takes place between the colleges over who's going to get various uh, uh, grants from the state to maintain uh, colonial service training. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Now, I think there's two aspects to it. I think um, during the Second World War, uh, there are key figures in the institutions who are um, very closely involved in the discussions about in the universities, I should say. So this is just with reference to Oxford and Cambridge, um, who are key figures in the discussions about uh, reforming colonial service training. And they are absolutely clear that it's crucial that universities continue to be um, the key providers of colonial service training. Um, and that is in part because uh, they um, themselves come out of a system um, in which the uh, sort of uh, um, what's perceived to be the kind of best training for entry to the civil service is not any kind of vocational or professional training in the way in which um, is the case in some European countries, for instance, um, instead, they very much believe that the best education for those entering the civil service, any civil service, is uh, a kind of liberal um, education um, that uh, sort of produces the um, the generalist, um, the gentlemanly generalist, um, and that um, it's institutions like Oxford and Cambridge that are best placed to provide that kind of training. Um, and at the same time, there is in the 1940s um, still a very strong sense of um, the value of the British Empire amongst um, some of these individuals and that it's important to the prestige of um, the institutions that they continue to be involved in um, providing this, this training. But there are also a, uh, a core group of academics 
um, who are the beneficiaries of um, colonial office funding. And like academics anywhere, um, they compete for uh, for that money um, and for the spoils of it. Um, and as time goes on, um, I mean, into the 1950s and 1960s, and as the um, sort of climate changes and um, there is uh, uh, much less um, sense that that participating in these kind of courses is um, important to the prestige of the universities as a whole, um, there are still these small groups who will continue to fight um, for this money because bottom line, their jobs are involved. And when the funding's withdrawn, in some cases, they lose their jobs. And that's one of the reasons why I, I found that to be so important in terms of the story about how the training evolves over the uh, in the in the in the universities uh, over the course of time that you examine. Uh, again, I was struck by the the photographs that you provided in the book of three different classes of trainees for uh, colonial administrative service and how the their complexion changes over time as they go from training Britons to go out and and uh, govern the empire to we're now bringing in people uh, uh, from the call from uh, Africa to train them in preparation for that transition that is coming up or we're coming in to train them as they're now getting their own services off the ground and they have yet to develop their own uh, institutional memories or training programs of their own. So we're going to continue to train them and, and how these endured into the 1970s and in and, and continue to play this very vital role, which is very different from the role that you described that they were created to uh, do in the 1920s, 1930s. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this this takes me into what is the third chapter of my book, which focuses um, simply on Oxford and Cambridge and the evolution of these training courses that as I said, had initially been um, intended for uh, white entrance to the colonial service, um, but which evolved to become courses that recruit um, initially some um, uh, non-white um, locals from um, different colonies and eventually in the early 1960s um, are entirely tailored towards students from, from overseas. So there's the really, in some ways, extraordinary um, situation that um, the training programme for the colonial service um, survives the end of empire um and and continues on uh, until 1969 um there are uh sort of descendants of the colonial service training courses um taught at oxford um in 1969 the british um ministry of overseas development which has assumed responsibility for funding these courses from the, the colonial office um withdraws its funding from oxford but it continues to give funding to to cambridge for these courses until 1981 um, when Thatcher's government makes cuts to Britain's aid budget and uh, and um, Cambridge loses its funding for these um, courses at that that point, and um, the content of the courses had evolved over the course of the uh, the nineteen sixties and um, in Cambridge's case the nineteen seventies. Um, in particular, the course at Cambridge became much more focused on um, development in the nineteen seventies. Um, which uh, incidentally is one um, quite powerful illustration of the colonial roots of development studies. 
Um, but nonetheless, uh, they are um, direct descendants of these colonial service training courses, and they survive really um, against the odds um, because uh, individuals at both institutions fight for their survival and their continuation, um, and they succeed um, for a time in persuading the, the British government um, that they should continue to, to fund these courses, um, no longer for expatriate entrance to the colonial service, but for administrators um, from former colonies, um, that the state should continue to do this as part of Britain's package of technical assistance and aid um, to developing um, countries. Um, obviously, only one small part of the way in which um, the British state, um, like uh, other foreign countries and international organisations, assisted with the task of developing public administration in um, in new um, new uh, states in, in Africa and elsewhere. You also reference another aspect of this, which is not really a central theme, but I, I thought as an American was uh, this rather amusing uh, subtext, which is the concern about declining uh, influence or loss of influence to the United States. And where you really see that is in your chapter on the Bank of England. And, and I thought that was very interesting in the sense of it, about how this wasn't just a uh, kind of like a, a hermetic uh, relationship or, 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 or once kind of sealed off between uh, Britain and the colonies. But in this environment, you're, you already referenced the Cold War, but they're also you know concerned about maintaining a role or, or, or an influence, if not a dominance, over these colonies uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, Western partners. And of course, you have the United States, you have the Bank of England uh, representing the British when it comes to the finance. And then the United States, you have uh, the Federal Reserve Board, the IMF, which is positioned in a way to uh, usurp some of these roles. How does the Bank of England adapt to this changing dynamic? And in what ways are they uh, attempting to uh, maintain their presence in the colonies beyond the ones that you just described? Well, as you say, the, um, the sort of post-Second World War international environment is is uh, uh, very different to, to earlier periods and one in which uh, the British no longer um, have the uh, edge over other powers and are unquestionably sort of subordinate um, to the United States. Um, but I think initially at the Bank of England, um, they, the officials who've been sort of brought up um, uh the, who've uh, the, the ones who are in charge who sort of come through um, the bank in an earlier period where they're used to being able to shape developments overseas. And I think there's a strong expectation among them um, in the late 1940s and the early 1950s that they should continue to be able to do so despite Britain's diminished um, economic standing and despite um, America's um, dominance of the, the post-war uh, world. Um in the bank's case, as I said earlier, they had developed this um, strong vested interest in the Empire Sterling area, and um, in particular um, in the um, in uh, the colonies' continued um, membership of the Sterling area and their continued use of sterling as um, a reserve currency and holding their reserves, etc., in in sterling. Um, the way in which political change in the colonies threatened that 
um, was because uh, the colonies began demanding um, their own financial uh, institutions, independent financial institutions, first of all, um, state banks, um, and then more particularly, um, central banks that would have currency issuing powers, and with it, of course, their own currencies, rather than those issued by the uh, the colonial um, currency uh, boards. Um, and the Bank of England was initially resolutely opposed to this development and to any kind of financial devolution. Um, and it set out really to obstruct the development of um, of uh, state and central banks in British colonies in, in Africa. Um, but by about the mid-1950s, it was becoming apparent that it, it could no longer do that. And one of the reasons that it was becoming clear it did, couldn't do that was because it faced um, some uh, sort of pressure um, or um, the influence of both uh, the American Federal Reserve and the World Bank in, in British colonies. Um, for example, uh, you know, with World Bank economic missions where they recommended that there should be some steps in the direction of the development of, of central banks, it became hard for the Bank of England to to resist that. Um, and so at that stage, the British Gov uh, the Bank of England set out to um, exercise as much oversight as it possibly could over the process of financial devolution and the creation of new um, central banks in, in British colonies. And um, it did that in a variety of ways, uh, in part by supplying where it could experts to advise on drawing up the constitutions for these new banks. Um, and in that way, um, the Bank of England sought to ensure that they followed a British model of, of central banking. Um, the Bank of England also seconded staff to work in some of them, and it instituted its own um, uh, training course that ran for some weeks in London and took place every um, two years, and that was uh, aimed particularly at um, or only at Commonwealth uh, countries. Um, and in doing that, the Bank of England sought um, not only to promote adherence to the sterling area and to the continued use of sterling, as well as to promote the City of London um, and the financial services of the City of London in new states, but also to advance its own model of central banking that was distinct from that of the Federal Reserve. Um, and so although uh, at one level, um, British and the Americans obviously shared a vested interest in maintaining sort of Western influence generally in um, former uh, British colonies um, as they became independent and in the early post-colonial era, um, my research on the Bank of England um, highlights how you know, particular British institutions nevertheless also had their own agendas and um, sought not to promote a kind of generic Western influence, um, but um, in, in some cases a very particular uh, model of sort of Britishness um, and of, of British models as distinct from um, other Western uh, ones. And that was an aspect of your book that I thought was especially relevant for today, given that we still have that ongoing discussion about the continuing role of 
various Western uh, nations in the affairs of their other countries. And I, I thought you pointed to just how, uh, if, if, for lack of a better word, off the top of my head, insidious some, some of these influences were about how sometimes they're, they're very, uh, they're, they're uh, kind of behind the scenes and, and you're not necessarily aware of them, but they're ex- by extending these cultural practices, they really help to shape that reorientation uh, or that, that continuing orientation back to that, uh, that, home country because you, you think about when you have a banker who undergoes his training in England in English practices if an issue comes up or a concern comes up to whom are they going to be most comfortable turning on the international scene and the answer of course is to the people who they receive their training from in the practices that are with which the most familiar I mean I, I have to say of course that um uh British institutions like the Bank of England that became involved in in providing what we can describe as a form of technical assistance to um, institutions in in new states, obviously competed with many other sources of of aid and assistance. Um, And within um, former British colonies, uh, many elites preferred to source their assistance and aid from um, places other than, than Britain. Um, so, for example, in Ghana, which was the, the first of Britain's African colonies to become independent, um, the, the finance minister in Ghana um, was instrumental in persuading the IMF and the World Bank to develop their own um, sort of infrastructure for dealing with, with African states. Um, because when uh, Ghana became independent, neither the World Bank or the IMF had a dedicated kind of Africa um, department um, and the IMF went on to um, offer a whole range of different training courses and also uh, to provide assistance in, in different ways and the Bank of England's um, uh, the, the, the assistance that the Bank of England provided was um, was you know small really in, in scope um, but the bank certainly hoped that it would foster connections to the Bank of England. And um, particularly in in the earliest years, uh, when because there were so few um, uh, highly trained um, professionals able to replace um, the British at the helm of different institutions in new states, um, those who uh, had, for example, attended um, the Oxbridge training courses or who participated in some of the Bank of England's um, training um, there, there were a significant number who went on to occupy very senior positions in institutions of, of new states. Um, it's not to say that uh, in that capacity they um, acted in ways that um, were necessarily in, in um, British interests at all. Um, but nonetheless, the connections between some of the British institutions and professionals in institutions in new states were, in other respects, quite surprisingly um, long-lived. I also thought about it from another standpoint as well, which is this notion of how the British maintain a certain concept of themselves as being the the highest standard. And I thought that really came across uh, best in your chapter about the Royal Mint. 
And that was a chapter where I, it, it took me a while to appreciate just how important that would be. And I, I was thinking of it for, from uh, the, the standpoint of how when we approach ancient history, one of the ways that we oftentimes access it and, and measure it is through the spread of coinage. And, it, and thinking of it that way made me realize just how uh, something as seemingly mundane as minting coins would, was one uh, was a very important statement of sovereignty to these countries and how important it was as a measure of their newfound independence and their, uh, for lack of a better word, the, the, the deserving that independence that they have high quality coinage that represented their country at its finest, and which made the world mint, gave the world mint a great argument to step in and do just that. Mm. Um, yes. So I think for new um new states, there were certain kind of badges of independent nation statehood, um, you know, having um, your own independent central bank was one and also issuing your own um, currency rather than than that of the old uh, colonial currency board. And again, it's it's another one of the uh, huge ironies um, or sort of ambiguities of the, the decolonization process that um, it was the British Mint which produced most of the uh, these coins, these symbols of independent um, nation statehood. They also, in many cases, produced um, independence medals. And when um, some former colonies, um, when uh, when they became republics, um, so no longer with the Queen as, as head of state, um, some of them issued uh, coins to to mark that. And again, the Royal Mint was involved in. In, um, in producing those. And then as um, we move sort of deeper into the post-colonial period, um, political instability in uh, post-colonial states proved quite profitable for the mint because every time there was a regime change, there would be a new currency. And um, because of the established connection to the mint, uh, for, for many of them, um, they would turn back to the mint to produce that new new currency. So um, actually producing these symbols of independent statehood um, and um, some of the political changes that occurred in, in former colonies were really a, a, could be quite profitable for the mint and, and a source of ongoing um, business. Um, so I, I spoke at the start about how the mint had acquired this vested interest in um, export business um, and how political change uh, posed a risk to that because uh, they would lose the colonies as tied customers. But it also presented an opportunity, an opportunity to go out and seek this, this new um, business. Um, and I argue that uh, the Mint was remarkably successful um, at doing that um, to the extent that um, by uh, the 1960s, um, the British Royal Mint devoted more of its capacity to export than any other world mint. Um, it had over 80% of the share of um, what it referred to as the available coinage market um, and was supplying over uh, 50 countries with their, their currencies, um, their metallic um, coins. Um, and um, it was able to do that partly because uh, new colonies um, seeking their own currencies, um, often uh, to quite tight deadlines, uh, would utilise the established connection to the mint. Um, but also the mint sort of went all out to ensure that it 
it secured the business of, of new states. Um, one of the other things I argue is that uh, because um, there was effectively a diaspora of British personnel um, in former colonies um, after they became independent, whether they were sort of legacy um, personnel from uh, you know, colonial administrators who were still in post, um, or some of those Bank of England personnel who were acting as advisors or um, seconded to work in, in new central banks, um, that this also facilitated uh, the Mint's acquisition of contracts to supply um, new states, with the result that decolonization had almost a staggered effect. And it was only um, into the 1970s that the, the Mint began to complain that um, as competition for um, business increased, um, particularly um, in the form of the American Mint, um, that uh, former colonies were only then beginning to realise that they were no longer tied to purchasing um, their coin from um, the Royal Mint. In your uh, in your final, uh, the final institution you examine is uh, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. And it's an interesting one in that it's an institution that is dealing with something that has a lot of Cold War implications with, with the uh, dealing uh, and the creation of an institution that in itself uh, in, in these countries has oftentimes posed a different set of challenges. And yet you explain that how this transition that takes place there as well, which is one that is, uh, well, I, 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 could, could you explain a bit perhaps that role that the that, that Sandhurst played and how it involved a, a certain shift in outlook for them as well? So I chose to um, look at Sandhurst because I wanted to focus on um, domestic institutions that were involved in what I see as three key sectors, administration, finance and, and the sort of military. Um, and... But Sandhurst's position uh, was different to that of the other institutions I look at, whereas I argue that the others exercised their own agency and had their own objectives and interests that they pursued during decolonization. In Sandhurst's case, I argue that wasn't so. Um, instead, Sandhurst was very much um, uh, that the, the role it played was very much dictated to it by um, different uh, departments of the British government, um, above all the uh, the War Office. Um, and what I argue in Sandhurst's case um, is that, well, Sandhurst, I perhaps should say that Sandhurst had um, also had an imperial role, um, in particular, very obviously, um, training British officer cadets um, who assume roles in the British Army and in, in that capacity might be... Um, uh, overseas in um, one of the sort of Britain's garrisons, or they might be seconded to work with colonial forces like King's African Rifles in, in East Africa. Um, but Sandhurst also trained British officers who were entering the, the Indian Army, as well as in the 1920s, some Indian officer uh, cadets. Um, that ceased when uh, India established its own military academy. Um, but after the Second World War, uh, the War Office um, was principally concerned to ensure that Sandhurst was a source of high quality uh, British officer cadets um, to supply the needs of the, the British Army. 
Um, they also hoped that some overseas cadets might uh, go to Sandhurst and in that way it would facilitate collaboration and communication between um, Commonwealth states. But uh, at this point, it's late 1940s, um, they thought that only uh, white overseas cadets should be admitted um, unless the cadets were from countries where British officers were no longer um, in uh, commanding roles in relation to um, local uh, forces. Um, but in the course of the late 1940s and the late 1950s, um, Sandhurst assumes a new role, and that is training a local uh, officer um, class. Um, and it does so both in relation to cadets from um, Britain's remaining colonies and from countries that had already um, attained independence. Now, in the case of cadets from countries that had already attained independence, um, the Foreign Office and the Commonwealth Relations Office uh, were very keen um, that Britain should train as many overseas cadets as possible, rather than that those cadets should be trained elsewhere, as indeed many of them were, um, uh, particularly to be understood in the sort of Cold War context. And indeed, they um, speak about how Britain's military training establishments could be utilised as a Cold War weapon. Um, the colonial office uh, sought places for um, uh, cadets from the colonies um, also because they wanted to sort of promote British models and British connections, but to facilitate a um, the creation of local officer classes to relieve some of the demand for um, a British officer class. And the upshot was that by the mid-1950s, um, the authorities at Sandhurst felt that they were overwhelmed with um, overseas cadets and that the presence of the overseas cadets was undermining what they understood as their core function, training a, a high-quality British officer cadet um, class. Um, and they set ratios on the number of um, overseas cadets that could be admitted. And they referred to these uh, in very telling um, terms as the dilution ratio, um, i.e. that um, the uh, number of um, uh, or overseas cadets needed to be kept below a certain level so that their impact um, in Sandhurst as a whole could be diluted by sort of larger presence of, of British officer cadets. Um, and you know, this reflected a couple of different things. I mean, one was the uh, uh, their suspicion, and there were some grounds for this, but perhaps there's also a cultural element to it too, that um, overseas cadets were weaker academically than British cadets, um, but also because uh, the presence of such large numbers of overseas cadets from very different countries um, generated tensions at uh, Sandhurst itself. Um, so uh, Sandhurst you know, shows something different. It shows how British military training could be used within the Cold War context um, and to offset some of the uh, the changes resulting from decolonisation. Um, so effectively, as sort of Britain moved from a, a situation where it could use, where the army was kind of symptomatic of British hard power, instead military training became a an instrument of, of British soft power. But it wasn't without cost for um, the institution, and it, it generated some resistance within within that institution. But remarkably. Um, Sandhurst 
went on to train overseas cadets through the 70s and the 80s, the Commonwealth and the 90s and, and still does today. And the Commonwealth element to those gradually diminished um, and the presence of cadets from Gulf states uh, became um, sort of more significant. But nonetheless, amongst a first generation of um, overseas um, Commonwealth Commonwealth cadets who had trained at Sandhurst, um, who then attained uh, positions of seniority in their own um, forces, and indeed in some cases as a result of post-colonial military coups, became um, heads of state, um, it encouraged a kind of professional connection to, to Sandhurst. Um, and for example, um, if we take Ghana, uh, the, as I said earlier, the first uh, of Britain's African colonies to become independent, um, Ghana initially sought to um, access training elsewhere. It didn't want to be tied to Britain. And yet, remarkably, um, Ghana sent cadets to Britain every year between 1957 and, and um, 19 uh, and the late 1980s, um, in part because uh, the British government funded some places for Ghanaian cadets, but also because there was a, a perception amongst Ghanaian cadets that actually, you know, a Sandhurst training was was good for one's career. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, sure. So uh, most recently, I've been turning to look at another institution that um, isn't featured in um, my book, but uh, it's one I've been working alongside in in tandem, and that's uh, the Church of England and its role and engagement with um, politics during decolonization and uh, some of the um, adaptations it made um, in the context of decolonization. Um, I have an ongoing interest in uh, development and technical assistance, and um, it's to that that I'm, I'm turning sort of after this. Um, I'm currently co-editing a book with uh, another um, historian of um, decolonization development, Veronique Dimier, which is on business and development. Um, and um, longer term, I'm, I'm building on this interest in development and technical assistance um, and the sort of transitional phase from uh, colonialism to after. And um, I want to focus more on the 1960s and the 1970s um, and Britain's relations with areas that remain part of the empire um, at the same time as Britain was delivering aid to places that uh, were, um, you know, newly independent. Well, it sounds like you have quite a few projects underway. I look forward to reading all of them. <laughs> uh, Sarah, thank you very much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Mark. Okay.